Check, check. One, two. Check, one, two. As usual, if there's anything you don't remember, just let me know. Okay. When I start digging on a cold case, I reach out to as many people as possible in an often unsuccessful attempt to see if I can find somebody who was there or involved. How close can I get to the beginning? But when I reached out to a detective I knew was at the Alachua County Sheriff's Office in 92 to see if he might remember the time a body was found in a retention pond, I didn't know just how close I had gotten. We're going to 1992. And what would have been your title at the Alachua County Sheriff's Office? I was Office? a detective sergeant. Detective sergeant. And the big question that everybody asked uh-huh. on this case was who was the homicide supervisor? Yes. Me. I can't figure that out. Could you walk me through that day? Did you get a call to come out there? We got a call that, that a body had been discovered and the deputy was on the scene and called for investigations department to come out and we went out and we observed her. In June of 1992, a Florida prisoner cutting grass for the Department of Transportation saw what looked like it could be a body floating in a retention pond on the northeast side of Gainesville. It was covered with pieces of trash, old styrofoam cups and empty beer cans, and so it was hard to tell exactly what they were seeing. But the prisoner's supervisor called it in and Detective Sergeant Kenny Mack was eventually sent to the pond. I soon remember somebody saying they thought it was a, a doll or yeah. mm-hmm. didn't quite look like a person. No, in her condition it wouldn't have because it was just a, the top portion was, you know, pieces were gone and down the bottom. When Kenny and the other sheriff's office investigators got there, they could see what the prisoner had found, but they couldn't get to it because it was in a retention pond. And that pond was surrounded by a six foot tall, locked barbed wire fence. Only the Department of Transportation had a key to the lock, and once someone was finally able to get a key out there, they still couldn't get in. Talk to me about the lock. Clearly, it had been locked for a long time. A long time. They had to use a lubricant on it to get the key to function on it, so nobody had been in there through that method for quite some time. They finally got the DOT key to work, and investigators and the ME were able to get inside the gate and get a better look. She was just inside the fence, oh, probably, my memory serving is correct, probably 10 feet from the shore. She wasn't in the middle, but she was onto the side. The sheriff's office took pictures of the entire area and what was determined to be human remains. You could see what was clearly a skull with teeth and clothes, a top, pants, a tennis shoe, and it was all in the shape of a body, as if someone had laid face down in tree pose. But when it was time for the Emmy to take the body out of the pond, things literally started to fall apart. The only thing holding what was left of her body together was her pantyhose. She was laying in that pond that was full of debris, a lot of slime and stuff on it, and you know, she was barely visible. And we went in and got her out, and she was literally coming to pieces as if she was been brought out. While the Emmys team did its thing, investigators were left to start theirs. First, they had to figure out whose body they were pulling out of a retention pond. And then, how in the world had it gotten there? If I remember correctly, I didn't have a theory. I, I was baffled. My opinion initially, she killed herself. But then the question lingers, how did she get in that pond? Now what do you think? 
I'm Haley Holloway, and this is Shallow Graves. The second one is, if there's anything of evidentiary value in relation to this case, the only real true throwaway we're going to find it is if we have this pond drain so we can see it and collect it as evidence. Once the body had been removed from the edge of that retention pond, the sheriff's office decided to have the pond drained in case there were any missing bones, evidence, even other bodies in it. Here's a report from Pete Christensen the day the pond was drained. Bit by bit and bucket by bucket, county crews and even prison inmates have worked through the day to drain this retention pond. If it yields no clues, identification will be left to forensic specialists. At this point, Gainesville, Florida was missing two young women who seemed to have just disappeared, their cases cold. The grisly discovery has quickly sparked speculation in this community. Could this be the body of missing U.S. student Tiffany Sessions? who disappeared across town three years ago. Police say that's unlikely. The body is too fresh. Rather, it could be the body of Judy McFarland, who disappeared in January, just nine blocks from this site. We have dental medical records uh, on Ms. McFarland. We'll be making a comparison on those sometime tomorrow. They didn't find much else in the pond, just a few more bones that belonged to the body, which was identified as Judy's. The medical examiner had been able to use her dental records to confirm it was her, and then when he made his report, he noted a few really interesting things. And I'm going to get pretty specific here, but only because I think these pieces are really important to this case. First, the Emmy said Judy's body was in an advanced state of decomposition that was consistent with having spent four to six months in a freshwater environment, long enough that there was aquatic life growing on it. And remember, Judy had gone missing mid-January, and the body was found in the pond toward the end of June. Then the Emmy said Judy had no internal injuries, evidence of injury, or indications of natural disease. And finally, and maybe most importantly, so remember this for later, the medical examiner said there was post-mortem damage, but no perimortem damage. So there weren't any signs of trauma from when or around when Judy died, but there was damage to her body from after death. Okay, so I think those were the big findings, but there were also a couple kind of weird findings. Judy still had a bunch of cash, $240, which obviously could have been from that check she cashed at the bank, but there were also some rocks and two fragments of brown glass. All of that was in her pockets. Glass, I could not begin to fathom what the glass is about in her pocket. Well, she picked it, it somehow got in there, I don't know. Or she had something glass in her pocket when she hit the ground, it, it shattered, I don't know. Uh, one theory is that she used the glass to cut her wrist, but there's, I mean, you, there's no way of proving that. As with many cases that wind up cold, Judy's presented many more questions than answers. And this part is really important to understanding the case. Because the medical examiner could not identify how Judy had died, he said officially that the probable cause of death was undetermined. And that left everything from premeditated murder to homicide to suicide on the table, all of which was publicly suggested by the sheriff's office. 
When Judy first died, the cops wouldn't even call it a murder. They said she died under suspicious circumstances. For Judy's older sister, Nancy, this was one of the most difficult parts of the case. This undetermined label that made it seem like anything could have happened. It was all articles about the police are baffled. We don't know how she ended up where she was. You know, it's almost like, okay, if she wasn't murdered, if she wasn't killed that way, then what are you trying to say? She jumped over a eight-foot fence with Bob Ware and threw herself in a pond and killed herself? Mm -hmm. Because it would be suicide. So, which is it? She was either murdered or she committed suicide. It didn't make any sense. The autopsy helped draw some assumptions. Judy was found fully clothed, she had jewelry on, and she still had all that cash in her pocket. And we know on the last day Judy was seen alive, she cashed that $400 check with her younger sister Jeanette and their friend James Arnett. Now, whether the money in her pocket was the same cash or not, Mary feels like the fact that she still had money in her pockets makes her death feel less random and suggests Judy hadn't just been targeted for anything valuable on her person. We were told, you know, that she had not been raped and they found cash money in her pockets, her owner, her jewelry was on her. So here again, it's, it, it wasn't that somebody kidnapped her to rape her and stuff or rob her, right? She had diamond ring on and I want to say she had diamond earrings also. So if you're going to rob somebody, that's the first thing you would have stripped, you know, stripped the money out of her pockets, stripped the jewelry off of her. This is a really interesting turn in this case for me. When someone just disappears, it sometimes seems like anything could have happened, right? But when a body is found, at least in Judy's case, it feels like that list of possibilities of what might have happened should get shorter. And I think that's one of the reasons this story doesn't make sense, at least to me. The circumstances, Judy being found in this locked retention pond, scream murder, right? And then add in the fact that Judy had been in the military, serving two years in the army and four more in the reserves, I have to imagine she knew how to defend herself, which just adds to the list of things to question. So Gainesville had yet another massive mystery around the very probable murder of another of its young women. But this time, there was no task force formed. There were no national efforts made. There's not even a report of a death investigation. Instead, it turns out the two local law enforcement agencies were actually arguing over who got Judy's case, or rather, who had to take Judy's case. With Judy McFarland's case, initially what I recall, it was a question of jurisdiction because the jurisdiction where her body was found was right on the cusp of where the county meets the city of Gainesville. I remember, for whatever reason, it's almost a vivid recollection of, of an ASO detective. I can't remember who it was, but I can remember a sheriff's office detective and someone from GPD having this conversation in the hallway. It was like, no, 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 she was, she was murdered in the city. Sadie Darnell was the Alachua County Sheriff from 2006 to 2021, but she was the public information officer at the Gainesville Police Department when Judy's body was found in 92. Sadie never touched the case, but she was there for this fight about where Judy could have been killed before she ended up in the county's retention pond. 
There was this back and forth of, no, she was probably killed in the city, and then they dumped her in the retention pond. That was the county saying that because they wanted the city of Gainesville to take it. And then the city said, no, 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 her body was found in your jurisdiction, it's yours. Just so this is clear, and maybe you already know this, but police departments generally cover cities, while sheriff's departments tend to cover counties, usually the areas outside of the city that are still in the county. Just a difference in jurisdiction. Sadie said this particular retention pond, which was surrounded by thick woods on three of its sides, was in the county, but just outside the line between the city and the county. And so she was hearing a detective from the sheriff's office, which was responsible for this pond, trying to make a case that Judy could have been murdered in the city before she ended up in the pond. And thus, the Gainesville Police Department should have to do the death investigation. That's wild that they were fighting over who didn't have to do it. I remember that conversation going back and forth. And I thought, well, <laughs> you know. But to me, it was clearly a county case because her body was found in, sure, in the sure. retention pond of the county. Now, it was close, a close jurisdiction. That's but, wild. Again, just one more horrible piece of circumstance. Yeah, yeah. Oh, exactly. Yeah, so definite unfairness to yeah. it, you know. In addition to this back and forth over where Judy had been before the retention pond, there were, and still are, a lot of opinions over how she got into the pond. Mostly how whoever got her there dealt with this locked gate. Did they go over, under, or through it? To my knowledge, the through was never really considered by anyone. The gate had a chain lock and there were no reports of it having been opened in the recent past. So that leaves over or under. I think most of the people I've talked to about this case lean toward over, that maybe someone with a truck backed the bed up to the fence and then hoisted Judy's body up and over the barbed wire, and she eventually made it into her resting spot in the retention pond. But Detective Kenny Mack doesn't buy that one. I, I just, I don't go with the theory of putting her over that fence. That is a hell of a lift to get her over that fence and get her into that pond, because there's distance between if you just rolled her over the fence, you get her over that barbed wire fence and rolled her over, you had to get in there with her and bring her out into the pond. But that only leaves the very creative and much more intricate theory from those who believe Judy's body arrived under the fence. And by the way, this is what Sadie heard that ASO detective arguing while trying to get the city to work the case. The under theory revolves around the county's storm drain system and says Judy's body floated through the pipes under the streets of Gainesville until it washed into the pond and was found by the DOT's lawn crew. The only other thing that we could entertain at the time is she was put in a manhole and she washed into there over time. As she decomposed, you know, she got smaller and smaller and she washed in there. And how did you get to the, the storm drain theory? Because I saw I, maps galore of how it could have happened and people have figured out the water flow situation. Like, how did you arrive at that possibility. One theory we had was she, she washed through, and this bears out because William Maples mm -hmm. at Pound Identification Lab said she appeared post-mortem to have had injuries consistent with 
a hard fall. This is why I wanted you to remember the medical examiner's report and how he said there were no signs of trauma to Judy's body from around the time of death, but there was damage to her body after she'd already died. Specifically, he noted that several of her bones had been scraped up from contact with a rough surface, most likely concrete, after death. So that, that gave better light to the fact that you know, she washed through that culvert. And I guess that would have been made of concrete. It was made of concrete. Are you following this? The working theory in 92 was that Judy had been put in some sort of storm drain that fed into the retention pond, and that was thought to be the best explanation for how she ended up where she was found. After Dr. Maples came in with a concrete thing and, and being at the scene and looking and seeing how difficult it would be to get her over that fence and then have somebody crawl over the fence, one person or two persons, and then drag her out where the body was located in the pond, that would just seem to be the, the best theory we could come up with. Sergeant Eckert said, you know, the only other way you could get her in that pond is through that storm drain. And then here comes Dr. Maple saying there's damage to her body that would indicate she'd been pushed, drugged, slid, whatever, on concrete. And I said, well, yeah, that makes a lot of good sense. One of the biggest problems that came along with this theory is that there are thousands of access points to any given city's drainage system. There are 400 storm drains just on the University of Florida's campus. So someone at the sheriff's office had to get all these maps and diagrams of the county's drainage system together. And then they studied how the water flowed underground, the sizes of the pipes that led to the different retention ponds, where they narrow, so on and so on and so on, just to try and narrow down a likely route and possible starting points. Nothing seems like clear, totally possible, but that would have to be one of the few cases like that ever where that's so specific to be put in a manhole and then washed through and then found later that it's just, it almost can't wrap my mind around. Me neither, but you know, the evidence is there that she had post-mortem damage to her body from what Maples described as concrete. And that would make sense, the culvert's concrete. The logistics of this might make more sense to you than they did to me at first, but just in case you're as lost as I was, I want to over-explain here and make sure we're all tracking on the same page. And the sheriff's office was working backwards, so I will too, starting with the retention pond, since we know that's the ending place no matter what. Now, a reminder, Judy's body could have ended up there by going over the fence. And to be clear, some people still think that's what happened. But the storm drainers determined that Judy's body might have floated into the retention pond through an underground concrete culvert, which is basically a big concrete pipe for water. And to get to the culvert, they said she would have had to have been put in a manhole, which is another kind of big pipe that gives workers access to the culvert. And to have gotten into the manhole, someone would have had to remove the manhole cover, one of those giant circular things that you see in the middle of roads, which, by the way, are usually made of steel or cast iron and usually need a tool and some know-how to get open. So then the big questions are, who would have been capable of maneuvering one of those and could they have done that without being seen? Do you have any idea how heavy are those covers? Like, could I lift one? I doubt it. Okay. I doubt it. They're, they're 7,500 pounds. 
Is it in the street? Is it visible from the road? Would people have seen? No, it's it's. If they were looking, they would have seen the drainage where it comes off the road, the culvert where it comes off the road. They'd have seen that, but they, you know, the rest of it's flat. Okay. And you'd have had been walking or driving real slow, looking to see it. Mm -hmm. So if somebody did the work to get it open to put her in there, it would have been hidden. Yes. Okay. Once that lid goes back down, unless you're absolutely looking for it or walking that side, there was a sidewalk there. Walking that sidewalk, you wouldn't have seen it. There's also been some discussion around how many people were involved. Do you think it would have taken two people to get her over the fence or into the storm drain? Yes, two people definitely over the fence, maybe not in the storm drain, but definitely over the fence. I mean, you saw the fence, how it's, how it's canted out with the barbed wire. Chain link fence isn't much to get over, but when that gets that barbed wire like that, you've got to come out or around and over. And like I said, once they got her in over that fence, if that's the theory, Somebody had to come over with her and get her into the pond. And then they had to wait her down. They had to get her out of sight. There was no evidence of that there. There was no rope, no concrete blocks, no heavy object to weight her down. It sounds like everything you discovered along the way just makes it more mysterious. Exactly, exactly. My main question and still I have it today is how did she get in there? You know, how does she get in there? It's not clear exactly how far the sheriff's office took this storm drain theory. We know they mapped out some possibilities and talked about them with the local media. But after that, Judy's case just went away. No one ever made a report of a death investigation. Judy's name was never added to the list of cold cases at the sheriff's office. And that made it, in some ways, like Judy was thrown away more than once. Scott McFarland, who was born in Beaumont, Texas, November 25, 1961, passed away on June 25th of 1992 at a very young age of 30. She survived by her mother, Shirley Scott of Gainesville, her daughter, Melissa McFarland of Gainesville. Judy was buried on July 4th, 1992. Her family, friends, and members of her church filled the pews as her pastor struggled with what to tell this grieving group. What is life? I'd say life seems to be very unfair. This situation involving Judy is at least a great tragedy. Judy came to our church. Judy loved our church. She became a part of something so great called the Kingdom of God. She found an answer, and multiple answers, to life's dilemmas in worshiping God, loving God. There was no casket at the funeral, just a picture of Judy with her four babies next to an American flag, folded into a triangle and presented to her mother. I see some of you this morning weeping. I am happy for that. I get worried about a society that is so stoic and so in control that it can never drop tears about someone they love. 
I'm so glad to see the house full today. It should be this way. I'm so glad to see Judy's church family here that cared about her and worshiped God with her. After a brief emotional service, Judy's bones were laid to rest in a cemetery where her kids could visit her as they grew up, whether they were ever given any answers or not. Death has invaded our ranks, taken from us, Judy. Therefore, we commit her body to the grave, dust to dust and ashes to ashes, and her spirit back to God who gave it, believing there will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. And that should be the end of Judy's story. And for the sheriff's office, it was. Through the years, I tried to open her case up. Every time I could get a vacation or a time that I could get down to Florida, I would go to the sheriff's office. I went multiple times and waited for hours at the sheriff's department to talk to him about my sister, to ask him if anything had come up. Would they open the case? Why won't they help me? I would call. I wouldn't get call bags. Nancy, do you know about how many times you contacted the sheriff's office or visited there asking for them to take a look at Judy's case? I'd say probably eight times. I can't afford vacation every year, so maybe seven or eight times. Wow. This is the only time I went to Florida, I went there. I spent hours and hours and days and hours on my vacations just trying to get them to look at her case. No one would speak to me about her. I was nothing to them. But after decades of trying to get someone to reopen her sister's case, Nancy finally found the right someone. Once you even heard about Judy, in general, walk me through your investigative process. Well, when I first got the police reports, I documented in my notes where everything occurred. So I'm very visual. You know, I, I had to see it. So I wanted to see where the retention pond was. I wanted to see where the church was. The cold case detective at the Alachua County Sheriff's Office, Kevin Allen, was basically starting Judy's case from the beginning. Nancy sent him some newspaper articles and documents that she'd been holding on to since her sister first disappeared. But there wasn't much else for him to work with. I did a little research, and so I asked our records division to look up Judy McFarlane and try to get me all the original documents for that case. And when I got it back, I couldn't find any investigative supplements from any of the detectives that were involved in the initial missing person investigation. And I've been able to find any reports about the death investigation. So you know what we know about Judy's disappearance and how she was found. And now I think we should take you through who we know. Because if the circumstances around Judy's disappearance and death seemed mysterious, wait until you hear the detective's list of witnesses and possible suspects and what else was going on back then. Was anyone ever looked at as a suspect in this case or brought in to be interviewed as a suspect? I wouldn't say brought in to be interviewed as a suspect. I want to be really clear that no one has ever been publicly named as a suspect or person of interest by the Alachua County Sheriff's Office for Judy McFarland's murder. But again, it appears no one had ever worked this part of the case. So I'm going to let Detective Allen walk us through these persons of interest episodes because he's the only one to have made it this far into the investigation. 
There are plenty of suspects in that case, as you know, and a couple of them have motive and opportunity. There are so many people to look at and things to consider that it's almost like a sick version of Choose Your Own Adventure, but with a list of men and an actual woman's death as the outcome no matter the path. So we're going to go through each of them, one by one, and in no particular order, and we'll see what shakes out at the end. I want to start in a whole different chapter of Judy's life, before all of her kids had been born, before she was living with her mom, before she'd started this new chapter at her church. Because before Judy found Jesus, she found Jim. I think the biggest turn in Judy's life is when she met her husband because that seemed to start her down a whole different road. Jim McFarland was a pilot and he was a smuggler and he smuggled drugs for cartels in South America, in Central America. And so Judy went from probably living a normal lifestyle to marrying someone who is a pilot for a cartel. That's on the next episode of Shallow Graves. Judy has left us now. She's on another plateau. The Bible teaches us nobody dies. Death is just a transition. It's what the Bible calls a departing, a setting of a sail. Don't you ever think Judy is not alive? This is just a plateau. This is just a level. We live on. If you know anything about the murder of Judy McFarland, call the Alachua County Sheriff's Office. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or call me and leave a message about this season. The number is 352-559-5717. Music for this season is by Market Lineout Studios, and all reporting, producing, and editing is done by me, Haley Holloway.